We are continuing our series, Your Story Matters, and you've heard uh, powerful testimonies every week from people here uh, from the cross, uh, people in our body. But uh, this week, we have another powerful, powerful narrative that you'll get to listen to. Last year, our church, for the very first time, uh, Sammy and Cassie and Steve and others came to me and they're like, man, we need to do this Operation Christmas Child, Miracle in a Shoebox. Uh, we, we need to start getting involved with that as a church. And so we did. And uh, Kathy, who's with Operation Christmas Child, is with us today. She said, you guys became kind of like my poster child, my golden child. First year, your church rallied together over 800 boxes. And I'm like, look at that church rally and what they've done. So good for you for taking part and blessing so many lives uh, throughout our nation. That's awesome. But, but one of those lives that, were, that was touched by this ministry is Judy Lopez. And Judy is going to share with us today, and I, I, I can tell you this. Uh, I sat there this morning, and it is one of the most powerful just uh, moments of listening to how God has restored and redeemed your life. And so we're so glad that you're here. So Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before you were formed, in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart to be a nation. I, I appoint, appointed you to be a nation, uh, a prophet to these nations. Uh, my story starts, I'm original from Honduras. I have three siblings, and I also have a twin sister. But when my twin sister and I were born, our parents got divorced. So due to that, we ended up going to uh, a lot of different orphanages including my twin sister and my other siblings as well. But at the age of two years old, something really major happened. So due to that, I was separated from my siblings, including my twin sister. Um, I have not seen him since then, but I still believe that there is a God that is going to bring us together one day. After that, I ended up going to another orphanage. The orphanage that I went to it, it started with five kids, and then it grew up to 550 kids. At the beginning, there was no electricity, there was no water, and sometimes if we had three meals, it would be more like a tortilla and salt. As I said in the first service, if you don't know what a tortilla is, come to a Hispanic restaurant or come to my kitchen, and I will teach you how to do it. Um, but then after that, in a lot of the orphanage that um, in Honduras, you don't have the privilege to go to school. But in the orphanage that I went to, I was so blessed and thankful that I did have that opportunity. I was only six years old when we heard, I was in second grade when we heard a helicopter coming to the orphanage and landed in our soccer field. I say a soccer field, but it was basically a rock field. Um, but at least we were so thankful that we had something to play with. Um, I remember that the helicopter came, they brought these brown boxes. We didn't even have a clue what was going on. I just remember our teacher said, we're going to divide you guys in different ages and take us to the church. Because as you pack uh, shoe boxes last year, you know that if you were packing for a girl and a boy, you have to know what age as well. So they divide us in different ages, took us to the church, and they start giving us these boxes in here. And they said, you are not allowed to open it to everybody until everybody get their own shoe boxes. There was 550 kids in the orphanage. So I remember I was one of the first kids that received the shoebox. And I say, excuse me, ma'am, can I open my shoebox? And they were like, no, you have to wait for every single kid to get their own shoebox. 
And I was like, do I have to wait for everybody? Because one, I was the first kid that received my shoebox, but also my friend who was beside me, she had a clear shoebox. So you were able to see what was inside her box. <laughs> so I was just so excited because everything that was inside was so colorful. And I remember uh, it was my first Christmas present ever. So I remember while I was waiting, I didn't even know that there were presents inside. I just saw that there were so many colorful things. And I remember while I was waiting for everybody to receive their own shoebox, I started shaking my shoebox trying to figure it out what is going to be inside of that box. And then I remember after, like, later after everybody had received their own shoebox, the missionaries, they pray for us, and they share the gospel about baby Jesus being born. After that, I remember that we all at the same time, 550 of us, count to three, and then open our shoeboxes. And it was just, everybody was so screaming, everybody was so excited, and you can just see it was just a, like they say, a chaos, or chaos, that one right there, yes. So it was just so crazy, but I remember when I opened my shoebox, this is just similar to the shoebox that I got. It's not the same one, but I remember I was so excited because when I opened it, I started screaming because I saw like a soap and a cloth. Something simple, as up in a cloud. But then there was also like more things like a, a little teddy bear or like, this is a meow meow, right? <laughs> yeah. Something, but um, there was also like so many other things. There were like one thing, well actually not one thing, but everything in my shoebox was so special. Every single thing that there was like, um, let's see, I will put this one right here. Crowns. There were so many colorful crayons that I was so excited about it when I opened it. Uh, but one thing that I jumped and I got so excited was a set of 10 pencils. Why? Because in the orphanage, there were so many of us. And at the beginning, they would give us a notebook and a pencil. And it has to last us an entire year. And if it doesn't, we would get in trouble. So I remember I started jumping and so excited because it was not only one pencil, but it was a set of 10 pencils on it. And I remember when the program was over, I went and hid my pencils in the ceiling at my house. So nobody would steal it from me. And there was also like a notebook, which is in the bottom. I'm not going to take it out. But there was also so, another thing so special, a toothbrush. I have to share my toothbrush with 25 other girls in the orphanage before the shoebox came. And I was so blessed that I had my own toothbrush and I didn't have to share it. There was also, uh, let's see if I can find it in here, um, a toothpaste, a pinky bubble mega toothpaste. <laughs> and normally at the orphanage, because there were so many of us, um, they, we have to brush, basically we have to brush our teeth with salt. So I never knew what was a, tooth, a toothbrush, I mean a toothpaste. So I opened it. And it tasted good. It tasted good. So I ate my entire thing. Yes. Um, there was also so many other things like hair stuff for girls, for the hair. And there was erasers. But there was something so special. Something really, really special in my shoebox. There was a picture. This is some, a picture of me, of course. But this is what I put in my pictures. I mean, in my shoeboxes. But there was a picture of the American little girl that sent the shoebox to me and a little note that just said, simple said, 
Jesus love you, and I love you too. Being honest with you, I was only six years old. At that time, I didn't understand why I was getting a shoebox. I just knew that it was so special for me because for the first time, I have toys and I have school supplies, and I can say it's my own, and I don't have to share it with anybody. So I was just so excited about it, but when the shoebox made an impact on my life was at the age of 13 years old. And the orphanage, there was no more financial support for my class to continue going. So uh, because of that situation, I just finished ninth grade, and because of that situation, I had to cook in the kitchen for 120 boys by myself every day for three years. But every other day, I didn't have to cook. And then one specific Sunday, I mean, sorry, every other Sunday, and one specific Sunday, I had a box with me where I had pictures, letters from missionaries and volunteers that came to the orphanage through all those years that I was in the orphanage. And they give us those letters to encourage us. And one specific Sunday, I took the shoebox with me to the mountains and the orphanage. And uh, when you were a girl in the orphanage, you were not allowed to play soccer because it was supposed to be only for boys. But that day, I took the box to the mountains and the orphanage. And I was just, after hours of crying and crying and just blaming God just for the life that I was living in, I even questioned him. I asked him, God, why like, did everybody, people say that you all this wonderful miracles have led me as an orphan? I was just angry at him because I felt hopeless. He has separated me from my siblings, including my twin sister. And I said, why am I an orphan? Why am I here? And I even asked him, God, if you really exist, show it to me. Show it to me because I don't see you here. I don't see you here. I remember opening the box that I had with me that day. The first thing I saw was the picture of the American little girl that had sent the shoebox to me seven years ago. And her little note that says, Jesus love you and I love you too. That was really special for me because even in the midst of pain of struggling, when I felt that God was really far away from me and he did not even care for me, he was always there for me. He was telling me that he did care for me. That same day, I embraced his love. Three months later, I have the privilege to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And that same day, I received a Bible. And when I opened the Bible for the first time, I just opened it for the first time, the first Bible verse I saw was Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, but to give you hope and a future. At that moment, out of 550 kids, I felt so insignificant. But God can use insignificant people to do amazing things. He can, and I do believe. That day in the mountains, I did believe that God had a plan for my life. Three years later, I had the privilege to move from the orphanage and went to a different organization called Eternal Family Project, where I had the privilege to continue my education. After that, in 2005, I met my adopted family from Dayton, Tennessee. And then in 2007, the Lord gave me the privilege to come here to the States with a full scholarship to play soccer. In 2012, after graduating with honors, the Lord gave me the opportunity now, as right now as well, to serve as a full 
Time Missionary with Fellowship of Christian Athletes, where I had the privilege to use the platform of soccer to coach young athletes about soccer, but as well to share the gospel with them. God has done amazing things in my life that now I take every single minute to serve him because I know how special that is. And I just want to encourage you just to finish up with, I just want to say, continue packing shoe boxes. If you have not, do it because it does make an impact like it did in my life. Sometimes you might think it's just a simple shoe box with a lot of simple things, but it's not about what is inside of the box. It is about sharing the gospel with a lot of kids around the world. And I just want to say thank you for what you guys are doing, and I really appreciate it. Thank you, Pastor Tim. We'll be looking at the book of Daniel today, at the book of Daniel. And the backdrop on the book of Daniel is kind of interesting, if you will. Uh, Judah had lived in rebellion for some period of time. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Judah was a strong uh, nation blessed by God. You can go back and study it. But Judah has rebelled. Judah's not honoring God. And all of a sudden, this cruel, nasty, vile, wicked king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar comes into Judah, and they capture Judah. And he's got control of it now. And so what's happening in Judah is, it's almost like the hand of God has been removed for a season because of their wickedness, and God's not blessing Nebuchadnezzar is an egotistical, narcissistic maniac. He really loves himself. He is all into his own image and persona. As you study the book of Daniel later, he builds this big golden image and shrine of himself and makes it mandatory that people bow down and worship this shrine. Very egotistical, very rude, very cruel, very mean, dirty. Now, get this. You've got this remnant of boys that are coming out of Judah. These boys have been brought over into Babylon. And four of these boys that we read about, they're teenagers. They're good-looking, sharp, handsome, intelligent, socially cool, physically strong, mentally, uh, some of the sharpest of the sharp, spiritually. They're all about their allegiance to their God. They're brought into Babylon. Now, as you study the book of Daniel, you're going to see three major, major tests and trials that take place. Chapter 1 is the initial test and trials of when they're brought into Babylon and certain things start to change. Chapter 3 is where you read the story of them being thrown into the fiery furnace. And chapter 6 is where Daniel himself is tossed into the lion's den. So you're going to read three different trials or tests, if you will. Now, let me say this. Their faith in God was repeatedly tested, but faith that cannot be tested can't be trusted. And when you look at your own narrative and your story today, what strengthens us in our faith journey is that our faith has to go through tests and trials. Faith that has not been tested can't be trusted. How do you know what your resolve is if you haven't gone through tension and adversity? The world would love for us to lose the power of testimony and witness and joy in our journey. Uh, the scripture says that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and to destroy who we are. 
Paul would even write in Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed. So Satan in this world wants to conform us and shape us. And just as we read the narrative of these boys in Daniel, each and every one of us are going to face trials every day. Every one of us is going to go through some type of uncertainty or adversity, whether it be physically or mentally or emotionally, or something's going to happen to us, it's going to kind of rock our world. Daniel chapter 1, verse 3, the king ordered to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought into Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning. Make sure they're gifted with knowledge and with good sense. Make sure they have good poise so that they can serve in the royal palace. Teach these young men the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily ration of the best food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for a three-year period, and then some of them would be made advisors in the royal court. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael were the four uh, boys that we're going to read about here. Now, the chief official brings them in and says, I want to give you all Babylonian Chaldean names. So you get the names of Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's not their names. It never was their names. Verse 8, Daniel made up his mind not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to him by the king. He asked the chief official for permission to eat other things instead. God had given the chief official great respect for Daniel. Let me give you four initial observations before I get into some principal observations. Four observations would be this. First thing you see is these boys experienced a new home. They had lived in Jerusalem. They were able to study Torah. They were able to go to a local synagogue where a teaching rabbi would teach them the word of God. They were able to walk in the dust of a rabbi, if you will. When you study their lives, these guys were very, very, very sharp. Now, all of a sudden, what you find is they've been uprooted from their home in Judah, and now they've been taken to Babylon. They're given a new home. I'll never forget, about three and a half years ago, getting in my car or in my truck and driving up to Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And I'm driving to Murfreesboro, Tennessee, pulling a little uh, U-Haul behind it, and I'm like, I'm about to drop my, night, or my 18-year-old son off for his freshman year in college. I was like, he's going to have a new home. Who's, who, who, who's going who, to teach him? Who's going to coach him? Who's going to infiltrate his life? Where, where, where is he going to be 24-7? What's going to happen? Any, anybody ever been there? They're, they're about to move into a new home. They're out of the comforts and the conveniences of what he's been brought up in. And these boys have been captured. They're now taken into Babylon. It would be like taking a kid from Loganville, Georgia, who's attended the cross Loganville from the time of his birth, who's now 14 years old, and dropping him off in Amsterdam, where promiscuity is legal to smoke dope, partying, chaos, corruption. And it's like, oh my God, I don't have influence with him. I don't have access to him. How is he going to live? That's what's happening. Second thing that happened is uh, they were given a new education. 
Again, they've been taught uh, the word of God. They've been taught the ways of God. And now all of a sudden they're brought into captivity and they're going to be taught Chaldean and Babylonian literature. What is trying to, to, to be done by Nebuchadnezzar here is to brainwash these guys. And there's brainwashing uh, happening all the time. When, when brainwashing means to reform somebody's thinking pattern. It means to alter the way they think. And so now all of a sudden this marinade of godliness and strong Christ-centered foundation, now we're going to start to uh, teach them paganism. We're going to teach them postmodern thinking. We're going to teach them things that are inconsistent with the things of God. Sounds a little bit like our public school system today, does it not? I've got a friend, she was in the first service. She sent me a thing the other day that her daughter is going to a Christian school. And she said, they're teaching that the earth is over 2 million years old. They're teaching evolution as a theory or as truth. You're sending your kid to a Christian school that's teaching evolution as truth? First of all, I've got a fundamental problem. One, it's not a Christ-centered school. Two, they, they bought into some worldly arguments. They're, they're not sharing truth with your kids. But, but we live in this society where there's so much uh, paganism and postmodern reason and, and subjective reasoning being taught. That's what was happening to Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael. We want to brainwash them. And, and, and it, people do this all the time. Let me change the way you think. Let me change the way you believe. I can do it through intimidation. I can do it through manipulation. I can do it through sleep deprivation. There's a lot of ways to try to get into the psyche of someone. But, but, but I think this would be the question. What shapes the way you think? Who's got the strongest voice in your mind? What do you listen to? What do you read? What do you watch yourself that's shaping your worldview? If you're getting your theology from Dr. Phil or Oprah, you're fishing down, you're, you're fishing in the wrong pond. And there's so many people that have been in church years after years after years and week after week after week that don't know the word of God. I believe that it is very important for us to know the arguments of the world. Don't miss me on this one. I want to know everything that the world is throwing at people. These guys, when you study their lives, learn the Babylonian Chaldean literature better than the Babylonians knew the literature. We should know the arguments of the world, not that we would believe and submit to the arguments so that we would be able to reason and dialogue and debate from a Christ-centered standpoint. It is absolutely crucial to know truth, especially in a postmodern culture. And so just like these guys went through this revamping of, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna educate you differently. Our world is trying to do that to us. Third thing that happens is they were given new diets. Uh, y'all going to eat off the king's table, and, and, and we, we're going to give you a choice wine, and we're going to give you a, a new diet. And they're like, no, no, man, our systems are not used to that. And so they begged God and said, hey, hey, would you grant us favor so that we can just do veggies and water and, and stay on what we know? Because the food that uh, they, they were, they were going to be served was food offered to idols, and for a Hebrew boy to eat food offered to idols would be blaspheming the God he belonged to. If you want to change somebody, change their diet. Watch some of these uh, documentaries 
of the guy who only ate McDonald's for like a month and how much weight he gained and how much sodium and how bloated and jacked up his system was. Have y'all seen some of that? If you want to jack with somebody, change their diet. For some of you, I eliminate sugar, sweet tea, and Dr. Pepper's out of your diet. You have a mad headache within two days. You want to kill me. <laughs> Eliminating caffeine? Come on, you Starbucks Dunkin' Donutters. Come on. <laughs> Eliminate caffeine from somebody's diet? Man, they want to kill you. But what they were trying to do here is to jack with them because we know if we can change a person and put them in a different geographical location with different social uh, kind of environment uh, skill set going on there, as well as change them mentally, as well as change them physically with their diet, we can start to alter who they are. The last thing they tried to do was to change them spiritually. They were given new names. And the world does not like the name of God, Elohim, Jehovah. But every one of these boys had God right in the middle of their name. Daniel's name means God is my judge. They were going to change his name to Belteshazzar, which means uh, the worship of Baal. He's like, that's not who I am. Uh, Hananiah, his name means Jehovah is gracious. What's your name? Uh, Jehovah is gracious. What's your name, Mishael? My name means who is like our God. What's your name, Azariah? Oh, is Jehovah is my helper. I mean, we could paint this up like a champ, but when you get to Daniel chapter 3 and they're like, we're throwing you boys in the fire. It's like, who's like our God? Jehovah is my helper. Elohim is gracious. We're not scared. Their names meant everything. Nomen est omen. Your name is your destiny. And their identity was wrapped in who they really were. I mean, you can study it, but Belteshazzar, Bel protected his life. Shadrach was the command of a moon god. They wasn't serving a moon god. Meshach, who was like a coup, it was another heathen god being worshipped. Abednego was the servant of Nego. All of these names were pagan names that did not carry any weight. But if we can change their names, maybe they'll forget their god. And if they can forget their god, maybe we can indoctrinate them and then maybe we can change them. The world constantly is coming at us every day wanting us to forget our God. Yeah, if I can get them to forget their God and forget who made them and forget that they're fearfully and wonderfully made and forget that when they were in the womb, God was already at work inside of them. Forget, if I can get people to forget who they are and whose they are, I can jack with a culture. That's the reason it's dangerous to the enemy when you start to realize your identity in Christ and the power of what God says about you, that you're accepted and you're secure and you're significant and you're his friend and you're his child and I'll never leave you. and I'm for you. All these proclamations, when I start to walk in that, it refreshes my soul. But when you study the life of Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, they didn't bend They didn't bow, and they would not burn. They had resolved that we're going to honor God come hell or high water. We're all in, and we're good with who God is in our life, no matter where we're at. Started thinking about, man, these guys were motivated to honor God. Motivated. 
Motivation is that something that compels you, that moves you, that pushes your buttons a little bit. Motivation is that something that increases the blood pressure just a little bit. I'm getting motivated, uh, stimulated. I want to do something. These guys were motivated with their resolve to honor God. What motivates you today? Think about it. What, what, what is the primary motivation in your life? Some people are motivated with success and stardom, position, popularity, possessions, whatever. What motivates you? It, it is so intriguing when you meet a person that, that just leaks and breathes. I'm motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ that's captured my heart. That's the reason when I heard little Judy share the first service, I'm like, this is one of the coolest stinking stories I've ever heard in my life. I've been on the planet 53 years, and that one rocked me. Okay, you know where she's going. Just prepare yourself. It'll be okay the second service. Oh, my God, that is one of the most powerful stories I've ever heard in my life for the second time. Why? Because it screams, look at my God. Divorced families. Orphaned. Siblings separated. Me and my twin separated at two years old. I believe in God. I'm going to get to see her again. Yes. Redemption. Hope. I'm like, look at her. Gets to come to the States. Graduates with honors. I'm like, stay hard. Help my son with math. I'm like, praise God. But this is so good. <laughs> But they were motivated with a cause. Now, I want to share with you four simple observations in closing from the book of Daniel. And here's, I want you to get this. One would be this. Honoring God is not always easy, but it's worth it. Honoring God, obeying God, surrendering to the Lordship of Christ is not always easy, but it's worth it. And if we draw anything out of the book of Daniel, we draw that. I'm going to stay with it. I'm persecuted. I'm attacked. I'm experiencing adversity. They've tried to change me socially, mentally, physically, spiritually, psychologically. It's not happening. Verse 8, Daniel made up his mind. Daniel resolved in his heart. Daniel drove a stake in the ground that he would not defile himself and lean away from the things of God. I'm like, that is the most crucial decision you'll, you'll ever make in your life. It's one thing to say, well, I prayed a prayer. I've asked Christ to save me. I've followed the Lord in baptism. I've taken that first step. But it's when you drive that stake in the ground that you say, I will obey God, period. I will honor God, period. I'm going to respond to the pursuit of God in my life, period. When you do that, it starts to answer all these other decisions, because that first trial they went through in Daniel 1 was the foundation and essential victory that led them to the others. You get this first one right, I'm going to honor God. I'm going to obey God. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to surrender to what he says no matter what. Now, now here's something I was tripping on myself. We know the stories in Daniel would we still applaud the person of Daniel if when he was thrown into the lion's den, he would have been mauled and devoured by the lions? Would we still sit here on a Sunday morning some 27 years, uh, 2,700 years later 
and go, what a cool story. I guarantee you one thing, it wouldn't have the traction in children's church that it does. And there was this dude, Daniel, if you really want to honor God, they threw him into this pit, this lion's den, and within seconds, they, they had clawed him. Blood was dripping, and he was unrecognizable, and, and they ate him because he followed God. But you would say, no, 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 that's crazy. Ask Nate Saint. Ask Jim Elliott that would take the gospel to the Aka Indians. And they're like, here we are, we're going to honor God. And they take the gospel to the Aka Indians. And they're murdered for the sake of the gospel. Yeah. What makes this story of Daniel powerful? It's not that the boys were rescued from flames and that he was chilling in a lion's den. What makes it powerful is his resolve to honor God no matter what. And I think a lot of times people serve an outcome-oriented God. You, you see, we use too many verses like Philippians 4.13, 4.19, Romans 8.28. We use them sometimes, Mama K, people use them as rabbit foots. Oh, I can do all things through Christ. No, 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 no. You're going through a test and a trial, and you're walking away from God. I thought your God was all up to something good. Can you praise him when you're shopped off and, and, and shipped off to the 10th orphanage? Can you praise him when you have tortilla every morning? Can you praise him when you have nothing? Can you praise him if you were sharing a toothbrush with 25 other people? Because where we live oftentimes is, guys, I'm just telling you my heart. We live in a culture that loves to serve an outcome God. I made the observation years ago. I'm rambling. But being in that baseball culture, bam, home run. Yes. Bases loaded, crucial situation, bam, strike three. Where is your God, dude? Is your God only good when the outcome favors you, or is he still good when you strike out? Man, my God is good. People come forward for, hey, I just want to share a praise. God raised up my husband. He was sick with cancer. Yes. But where's the praise? Mama Kay and Robin when Julian gets sick and God takes him to heaven and they're still rejoicing in the goodness of God. I want to hang out there. I want to hang out with God is good no matter what the outcome is. And I'm telling you, when I'm studying this here, I'm like, it's not always easy, but it's worth it. And if we're not careful, we can buy into the name it, claim it, blab it, grab it God that does not exist and he becomes only a cosmic caretaker to make sure that your life is filled with ease. Let me get back over here. That was all just free right there. I ain't seen that in my notes all week long. 
Here would be the, here would be the next thing. Refuse to compromise. Refuse to compromise. So, so Daniel 3, this is great. So, so look, look. They go to the king and say, you, you ain't going to believe it. You know when music starts to play, everybody's bowing down to that golden shrine image of you, most high majesty Nebi. You, you, you know what's happening? But these homies over here, these Jew boys, these Jewish boys, they ain't doing it. For, for real? No, they're not doing it. Which ones? Well, the Babylonians, we're talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so, <laughs> this is so cool. So they go to the king. King brings them in. He says, listen, boys, I'm going to give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue that I've made of myself. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. What God will be able to rescue from something like that? You narcissistic idiot. They replied to Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you that we will never serve your gods or worship the golden statue that you've set up. <laughs> hey, 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 listen, we, we know you're in charge. But, but, but listen, we ain't bound down to that noise. We, we're not submitting to that. So listen, he's able. His name is Jehovah Jireh. He can see me through, okay? I know his name. But even if he doesn't, we ain't backing down. So they're thrown into the fire. Heated up seven times the, the temperature it's normally at. Nebuchadnezzar jumped up and looked and said, oh, did we not throw three guys into that fire? But I see a fourth one like the Son of Man and they're walking around. Jesus then showed up in the fire. And a lot of times we're begging God to get us out of the fire and he's wanting to get into the fire with us. Man, I, I see these dudes and they're unbound. They, they're not even singed. Because where the spirit of the Lord is, there's always freedom. Jesus then showed up in the mess. And some of our inferior prayers at times is, Get me out of the storm. Get me out of the fire. And God's like, no, I want to do more than that. I want to meet you in your mess. I want to meet you in your persecution. Oh, you've been attacked and you've been slandered and you've been ridiculed. But I, I want you right where I've got you. Nebuchadnezzar said, wow. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any God except their own. There is no other God that can rescue like their God. Nebuchadnezzar, calloused, cynical, narcissistic, egotistical, prideful, is starting to become a believer in the God of these boys. Why? Because they refused to compromise. And I believe God is wanting to raise up a generation of... Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael's in our world today. 
Go to South Africa, baby girl. Go. Take the gospel wherever, but refuse to compromise. You don't have to bow. You don't have to bend. Your God is your judge, and he's able, even in the secular schoolroom. It takes faith and obedience to overcome the temptations. But it's like, I'm not going to back down. I have driven the stake in the ground. Three, God can use you wherever you are. You, you start to study the narrative of Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. I'm going to use y'all in the palace right after being captured. I'm going to use you. I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to do something with you, but you're going to have to trust me. I can use you at your workplace. I can use you at your school. I can use you in your own family. I know your family's nuts like mine. All of them are dysfunctional. But God goes, I want to use you there. You're not going to believe it, old brother. I don't have any other Christians on my ball team. I mean, I hear more GDs and more bombs being thrown. God, he's got you right where he wants you. He's not wanting to take you and put you on an all saints team. He may be wanting to show you that he wants to show up in your fire. You hear me? These dudes are not like 35 years old. They're young. Show up in my fire, Lord. Show up. I'm not even asking you to calm my storm. I'm just asking you to appear with me as we walk in this storm. And then none of us like adversity, do we? None of, we, none of us in here want to be attacked. But when do we grow? No matter where you are, God can use you. No matter what you're going through, God can use you. No matter how bad and painful it may appear right now, you may be in the mountains crying out to God. Why have you left me as an orphan? And you might be on the verge of experiencing a supernatural breakthrough that God is saying, I I'm raising you up, Judy. Who sinned, this little girl or her parents, that she would live in such conditions? Neither it was the Father's plan to rescue someone out of the domain of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of light and use a testimony to impact others. It was me. So ever how you look and whatever you've been through, lay it, in the, lay it on the altar and let God redeem it. Fourth thing, live out your faith with conviction. Live it out. Daniel chapter 6, Daniel proved himself to be more capable than all the others. The king even said, I'm going to point you even higher up. The other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in Daniel but they couldn't find anything to criticize. I love this phrase right here. He was faithful. He was honest. He was always responsible. He was completely trustworthy. We can't, we, we can't find anything. Like 1 Timothy 3 says, you've got to be above reproach so that they throw stuff. It doesn't stick to you. It's like nothing will stick. Then we've got to find something in regards to his worship with his God. So they do. So then they go to Darius and say, would you sign this decree that if anyone were to pray and worship and bow down to anything other than you for 30 days, we can throw them in the lion's den? And the king signs it. Verse 10, when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home, listen, listen, and knelt down as usual. 
Oh, they didn't sign this law. Saying if anyone were to worship the true God, they're going to throw them in the lion's den. Well, I'm going to do what I've always been doing because my name means God is my judge. As usual, with its windows open toward Jerusalem, he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. What's your prayer life about, Daniel? I just give thanks to God. I'm just praising him in the storm. I'm praising him in advance because he's a good, good father. You're not going to bow down? I made a resolve a long time ago. I'm going to honor God. Devoured, mauled, singed, burned. I'm not attached to the outcome. I'm passionate about following Jesus. Man, wouldn't that be a great testimony to leave behind? Your story matters. And God is wanting to submit these realities and truths and principles in your heart that you drive it in the ground to say, it's not always easy, but it's worth it. I refuse to compromise. I'm not going to bend and bow and buy into the subjective reasoning of this culture. I'm not going to do it. God, you can use me wherever, however, whatever you want to do. I'm not scared. I'm going to live out my faith with conviction. Now, Daniel, three things I wrote in the verses here, verses 3, 4, and 10 of chapter 6. Daniel was a man of competence. He was a man of character. And he was a man of courage. And I started thinking about that. I started thinking about that. When you've got character and you've got competence and you've got courage, you are a useful tool in the hand of God to influence other lives. Think about it. Luke, Christian, Nick, Jesse, generation. Here you boys are still teenagers. Character it can't be bought. It's got to be fought for every day. Competence. Luke, you're over here reading Ravi Zacharias. You're reading stuff right now from some of the most flaming atheists and agnostics in the world. I'll read your arguments. But you're over here studying apologetics of who is God? Who is the real God? Competence, get as much info as you can. Character, but live lives of courage. Nick Howard, 18 years old, up here sharing your story, not ashamed. Not ashamed. Jesse, keep showing up, my son. Your name means God is. God is sovereign. God is using you to infiltrate and influence many lives. Don't back down. Don't back down. Be men of courage, competence, and character. And watch how God uses you to shape the future generations. That's the word to us. What are you wanting to do in my life? Where do you have me geographically positioned right now to be an infiltrator? What am I scared of? What's going to make me quit? What's going to cause me to throw the towel in? Have I driven the stake in the ground and made a resolve? I'm all in. I pray that today's word encouraged you. And thanks for joining us uh, on this uh, broadcast today. If we can help you in your walk with Christ in any way, feel free to contact us here at the Cross Loganville. 
our email, info at thecrossloganville.org, or you can call us 770-554-3322. God bless you, and I pray that you have just an incredible day.